0: I am good. It's good to see you all this evening. Uh, Jim and Ryan and Steve and Drew Moss and Matt Scar left this afternoon, or this, I guess this afternoon they left to go to Tennessee for a conference, and so it's something that they went to uh, five years ago, and it's a, gr- it's a great um, conference that deals with how do you share the complete story of what we do on a Sunday morning. And so I think five years ago, maybe you would recognize this, we started putting a uh, presider in place on Sunday mornings to kind of tell the story of where we're going through the service, uh, the intentionality of our worship, pointing to where we're trying to go. And so they're going back with the team, the creative team to go and be a part of that. And so we can be praying for them. Uh, I'm sure they will have a great time. I know them too well. Uh, I was giving Jim a hard time. Because uh, we were laughing and, and joking about uh, Drew Moss, who went um, uh, on one of our trips uh, years ago, he got sick on the day they were flying out. He was coming a day later and was ain 't able to come and so that 's been a running joke in that uh, he 's probably got a temperature of ninety eight point seven and so probably won 't be able to go um, so he was actually running a little late, and so we were giving him a lot of grief about being sick at at that one point, and so I'm sure they're having a good time, probably at Drew's expense, uh, and so that's that's an awesome thing. Let's pray for them, and then we'll, we'll, we'll dig into the Word here. God, I thank you for uh, our body. Thank you for this church. I thank you for, Father, uh, our stance in trusting and relying on you, and Father, all of our needs are met in you. All of our hopes find, uh, find their uh, comfort and peace in you. And so, Father, we celebrate you and your son and the life that we have in you. Father, may we be a light in this community, uh, pointing to you that people would see in us Christ living and manifesting himself through your spirit in us. Father, I pray for the team, uh, the crew that's in uh, Tennessee, and Father, I just pray over them as they uh, take in this conference and, and more importantly, just are together and just sharing their hearts with, with what uh, you have put on them uh, for this church and how it leads and what it looks like, especially on a Sunday morning. Father, may we hear of uh, uh, incredible things and and uh, the opportunity to be uh, partners with that. So we pray for them just to have a fantastic time in that. It's in your name I pray. Amen. We are in the middle of the kingdom. Um, and I don't know about you, but the kingdom has always been a little bit of confusing. And I don't know if it's just me not getting it, or it just seems like we're talking about it a little, uh, you know, opaically and it's kind of out there and you go, okay, so what are we supposed to do with this kingdom thing? And so I'm going to give you my kind of, a uh, seventh grade level of kingdom. Uh, and I hope that helps you. It helps me a little bit. This idea of kingdom, uh, The kingdom as we've been talking for the last, all through fall, is just as we see this picture of God's promised kingdom coming through the Old Testament and we've seen it two weeks ago, we talked about uh, the kingdom manifesto out of the Sermon on the Mount and and this incredible picture of Jesus is is all of these teachings come together in the Sermon on the Mount and he's talking about the kingdom of God and what it looks like to be a, a kingdom worker, a person who is in the kingdom and that's us. And so we, as we move into what is the kingdom that is at hand, but yet a kingdom that is still going to come, that is a not yet. We kind of live in that mix between both of those. And I think that's where the confusion comes, is that, that, okay, we're we're Christians, we're following God, we're living in this kingdom, but we're also anticipating a kingdom? And the answer is yes, we are. We, We live in a kingdom where God has made this promise and we we stake our claim in the promises that God has given us. And as we see him teach through the Gospels, especially here about the kingdom, uh, we take from that how we are then to live in light of the kingdom in which we live. And so uh, we're going to look at specifically some parables. I know last week we talked about some of the parables. Uh, And today we're going to talk about, uh, actually next two weeks, Ryan will teach next week and I will be talking about the kingdom's parables that deal with judgment. And uh, I, I was doing a lot of study and actually ran into Megan down at the Credo House because that's just a cool place to go hang out and study. And, and I was hanging out there just doing some study and I was just doing some research on parables. And uh, it's really interesting because a lot of different scholars say different things about the number of parables that are actually in the gospel. And they go anywhere from about 36 to 38 to up to 66. And so that kind of concerns me a little bit. So how can we go 38 and then be 66? Most of them land in about 45 or 6 parables uh, that are in there. And and so we're, we're not dealing with all of those. We're going to look at four parables here that deal with judgment. And then there are also these parables that are surrounding them, and we'll talk a little bit about that. In your outline, I, I put some uh, fill in the blanks, so that'll keep you awake and keep you on task as we, we try to do some of these things here. But uh, Jesus used parables to convey how a person of the kingdom carries himself and I wrote that word and I'm thinking uh, is that an old word I don't know if we use that word today you know how do you carry yourself you know that that would be a term that I remember my parents talking about me and this is how you need to carry yourself and I thought about that term and and I just wrote that down I thought you know that might be worth talking about a little bit because as a follower of Christ how do you carry yourself you know it's not a term that if we weren't we were go back in the gym right now and talk about it, they're going I have no idea. Anybody understand what I'm talking about? When you carry yourself, how you carry yourself. Um, I, I, I like to watch people. And so, whether I'm in an airport or I'm at a ball game or I'm at an event here in town, I'm noticing the people as they walk in and out of places, especially walking into somewhere where there's a sense that maybe everybody is watching you. Have you ever, you know, like you go in and Like it's coming in and like right now and they pray and they just, everybody stopped and you're walking in and you think everybody's watching you. And so how do they carry themselves? Actually, we're talking about how they physically look at certain times, right? Are they walking with confidence, right? Are they walking with I own this place? Or do they kind of walk in a little bit like apologizing as they walk down the, I mean, I I watch people, I sit over here and I kind of, I have to admit, I like the angle because I like to watch people I'm sorry I do that at church. You guys don't do that, right? You guys also don't read your bulletins during the service either, right? You don't do those things either. But I mean, I'm watching people and I'm trying to gain a little bit about them by just how they walk into a room and how they carry themselves. And I think about as a Christian, the the parables that Jesus teach, teach us a lot about how we should then walk or carry or live. And, and I want to talk a little bit about that. We can walk with confidence, we can walk with a faithfulness, or we can walk like we don't know where we're going, we walk like we're lost. Uh, I remember at camp, we had a, this was years ago, and we had this uh, talent night at camp with little kids, and so it was like fourth and fifth grade kids. And so a lot of kids got up there, and, and of course the kids that love to be up front jumped right in, right? They wanted to be up front, and they wanted to share their talent, whatever it might be, you know, I don't know, making noise with their armpit, or, you know, burping the alphabet, all these incredibly spiritual things that they would do. And we had this one little boy, and he was, he didn't carry himself too well in fourth grade. But he was bound into determined to sing this special music song, and, and this was years ago, okay? And so he got up, and there's a song, I don't know if it was, uh, the Gaithers, I think it might be the Gaithers. Some of you, okay, I'm, I'm aging here. I, I know that, but he got up, and he, he was just shaking, and he was holding that mic, and he started to sing. He goes, I got confidence. God is going to see me through. And he started to sing that song about confidence. And I appreciated it and loved it. And everybody, you know, all the moms wanted to go and like, oh, let me help this young man. And all of the youth ministers like, Dude, that was pretty awesome, but that was also pretty funny. Um, And and I think about that, and I think of this, do we walk with confidence, or do we kind of walk with, you know, I'm not not real sure. Are we walking with a confidence that we know why we have the confidence in it? And when we look at Jesus and as he teaches about the kingdom, I hope that we walk away from this and we we, we explore the kingdom, what Jesus is teaching us as followers of him, that we will walk with a confidence— that with with a peace and with a sense of grace that our identity is landed in him, and we follow and and we want to do those things. You know, parables were the means Jesus used most frequently to explain the kingdom of God, to show the character of God, and provide expectations for the people of God in the kingdom. And this is why we're here as we look at these today. Um, I know last week, Jim kind of jumped right into parables, but I, I think it's helpful to do a little bit of teaching on You know, what was the parables? uh, What was that specific kind of genre, kind of teaching? I know that a lot of times when we come to the Word of God, I think a lot of times we read and we go by what we've always been taught about something. Uh, This morning in, in a group of men, we were talking about a different way to read the Bible. And one of those ways was to take the Bible and read it, like read a chapter and then just break it down. And one of the things that was challenged to us is that read it five times. And one of the things that we need to do in that is not only read it five times, but read it in a Bible that you don't normally use. And because if your Bible's like mine, I, I, feel, I fill in spots, I start highlighting. And as you read something and you're going to, I'm going to look at Philippians 2 fresh today as you highlight it all the way through it. It's hard to look at it when you already have your preconceived, brought to the table, every sermon I ever heard in my notes on my Bible. And I think when we, when we think of this, sometimes we look at parables and we come in with already uh, this complete understanding of what the parable means and what it's inferring. And so I'm going to challenge this a little bit by asking, by stating these characteristics of a Jesus' parable. First of all, it needs to, it's brief. Jesus taught this way, and it wasn't just because uh, I've heard it this way that it was a simple way to teach. Um, uh, and I think maybe in some ways it might have been simple for us that are hearing but I don't know if it was simple to teach necessarily, but it was usually brief. It wasn't a long uh, passage typically, and so you'll find different levels. There'll be a, a verse, and that is a parable. Okay, you'll have obviously half sections of, uh, of a chapter, and they will be brief. Uh, the second thing, it's marked by simplicity and symmetry. Marked by simplicity and symmetry. You know, it's, it's always a simple story. It's not... Uh, some you know, pie in the sky, sci-fi kind of, let's, let's have 30,000 people involved in, in the story. It typically is more, no more than two people or two people groups. Usually it's this contrast between, uh, you'll hear things like a wise and a foolish man or the rich and the poor, right? You'll hear these kinds of things, so it's very simple. It's also very symmetric. It's focused mostly on humans. Again, most of them, it's a story about people. Um, again, normal narratives. Okay, conversations that would be normal to the Jewish audience that would be hearing this sometimes in the story it was exaggerated, uh, so you 'll have some things we 'll look at a parable today that that 's a story that would happen. They would have a wedding they would they would hire workers, but maybe not quite in the way um, that the parable describes, and I think sometimes we can get caught up because we think it 's it's not historical. There's no way that they would do that. And again, you need to understand the teaching behind a parable is not to speak a truth about the facts of the story, but a bigger uh, point in which he's trying to draw into there. So it's focused mainly on humans. Number four, it's fictional descriptions taken from everyday life. Okay, it was everyday things. Let's, let's liken it to fishing. Let's liken it to uh, a wedding. Let's liken it to and fill in the blank. Casting nets. It's like these kinds of things. And so the descriptions, although fictitious, not describing someone uh, this is what John or this is what Peter did yesterday and making an illustration with it. It was, it was a story, a fictitious story, a description taken from everyday life. It was always engaging. I'm always engaged by the, prov- uh, the, the parables of Jesus. Number six, it often contains elements of reversal. And this is the this is what makes him awesome because you think you know where he's going and all of a sudden at the very end, a lot of times he just flips it on you, right? You read the parables like, wow, I didn't see that one coming. Except for us because we've read them so many times. Yeah, I know that's coming, right? And so it's hard for us sometimes to see it fresh and let the Holy Spirit speak through that. Um, Seven, the crucial matter of parables is usually at the end, like I just said. It's always told in context. I know Jim has talked... Uh, up on Wednesday nights several times. I know a class that he taught at Ozark that was a favorite by a lot of the students and it's still one of his favorite things to teach is teach biblical interpretation. And so you guys have sat under Jim and heard and I've sat under Jim and learned about the value of how do we interpret the right genre and context. And so it's important to look at the parables in light of, at least ask the question, what is the context where we find this particular parable? Number nine, it's theocentric, and the idea that the focus is always about his kingdom, okay? It's always about God, and this is the central focus of the story. I think a lot of times over church history, not just ours' history— uh, maybe 10, 15, 30, 50 years But church history from the beginning A lot of times The focus got off on And we did some things different with it And we're going to talk about that here in a minute Number 10, it frequently alludes to Old Testament texts And themes And so as we read it We'll remind ourselves like, Didn't I read this in Isaiah If you've got a great study Bible It'll take you to Psalms 37 And you'll see maybe I don't know how that connection happens Or like oh wow, that's where it is It is there and, uh, and so we'll find ourselves a lot of times doing those kinds of things. Number 11, uh, most of them appear in a larger context of parables, okay? Context matters, and I'm gonna say something here a little bit that sounds uh, opposite of what I just said, but hopefully you hear this. Context does matter, and a lot of times the context of parables together matter, okay? So when we see this, I, I just think it's important to do this. Uh, just some things that you might wanna know, kind of fun stuff, of his teachings, Jesus' teachings, are in parables, okay? That's a pretty good swath. Uh, And and as it breaks down, all of the parables you will find in the synoptics. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke is where you find them. I think the percentages, and and this is going to be, obviously, one guy's opinion, 16%. Uh, 43%, excuse me, if this is Mark, I'll I'll do that right. This is Matthew. This is going to be 43% and Luke, 52%. So it's important for us to have a little bit of understanding of when we go in and we look at uh, parables, um, what is taking place and, and a lot of Jesus' teaching and one of his primary ways of doing that is through the parable motif. And when you ask that question in light of and put it up against the kingdom of God, This is paramount for us to spend time looking at that and seeing what God has to tell us as the church and as a kingdom person, a kingdom person who follows Jesus. Um, I say that it's important for parables to be looked at in context. I think it's also important for us to realize that every parable uh, needs to be approached on its own, okay? Its own right and not assumed to look or function like other parables, okay? I mean, and so this is, very interesting to me Uh, i think a lot of times we 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 know that in this one particular parable well then and this is what this means and this means and this means and so we take that same framework and we try to apply it to all the parables and i think we do it uh, a disjustice when we do that and we'll come back to that talk about that jesus or jim not jesus jim described last week he's i thought it was a great way he described the parables are told by jesus to reveal and conceal truth while at the same time evaluating the heart as they inform the mind and I think that is a key uh, point behind it is that God was doing something. He was, he was, he was saying something that people were some getting and some were not getting. And, and how that worked is, is a powerful picture in that evaluating the heart while informing the mind. Uh, the context uh, once enlightened by numerous parallel texts, while assuming familiarity with the ancient culture, and so some of the fa- same interpreting uh, things that we bring to the plate, when we're interpreting Scripture, we use in parables. We don't want to shy away from that. We want to use the same kinds of things here. A word of caution, and here's, here's a couple of things, and I might get some disagreement with this, but I, I hope you hear what I'm saying. Uh, I think sometimes there is this idea that we treat a parable and it's like clay, or it's mold, you know, where we mold it to our liking and we make it fit into our story or into our belief system and so therefore the parable becomes to uh, uh, side with our views our presuppositions that we bring to the plate and it's really really hard to get away from that but yet this is probably an unwise way to look at the parables also the idea of domesticating it you know so that we always have these prescribed rules and so here's the seven rules on how to interpret a parable and, and and then thus it leads to meanings that we can't tolerate um, if you do any studying on the parables, you will find plenty of theologians who will have different kind of venues from this. And so obviously, I am using a part of that to walk through how I am helping us discern this. I think the danger runs in this. Let me give you an example. Matthew chapter 13, which is one of the famous uh, chapters in the Bible. Uh, that's, it's, it's a parable chapter. Uh, this is the famous sower uh, parable, you know, the guy sows on different forms of ground. There's also the parable of the weeds in there. Probably one of my favorite parables is in there. It's at the very end. It's, it's about the guy who comes up on a piece of land, and he finds this incredible treasure on it, and he goes away and he sells everything to buy it. I love that picture, that parable there. Uh, in Matthew 13 specifically, those two particular parables, the parable of the sower, the parable of the weeds, uh, actually has Jesus telling his disciples what he meant when he said those things, right? And so that's important. Let me, let me look at that real fast. Matthew 13. So if you have it, this is kind of a key passage as we look at interpreting. I think a lot of times because we see him do that, we're going to assume that this is how we interpret all of his, um, all of his parables. But in Matthew 13, especially I'll look at the one about the uh, parable of the sowers. The first, um, oh, 16, uh, well, actually, First several verses deal with that. And the disciples came in verse 10 and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? And he replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. So it tells us our audience, right? The audience is his disciples. He's he's telling believers who are following the kingdom. And it's for you, it's not for them. Uh, Whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables, though seeing they do not see, though hearing they do not understand, hear or understand, in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, again the connection to the Old Testament, you will be ever hearing but never understanding, you will be ever seeing but never perceiving, for this people's hearts have become calloused, they hardly hear with their ears, they have closed their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and I would heal them. But blessed are you because they see, because they see in your ears because they hear. For I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. And then he begins to say, so this is what the parable means. Listen to what the parable sower means. When anyone hears this, and he begins to describe almost verbatim a little bit about what that means. And I'm not going to spend time there, but I think because we see that there, we assume, so I read a parable later in Matthew 20, and oh, Jesus doesn't give us the definitions here, but I think we can add in. And, and one of the ways to do that is to take everything and turn it into a metaphor, and even stronger, make it an allegory. And I think the danger in parables, which I find most often the case, is that we will allegorize the parable and give everything in it significance. Okay, so so for instance, we give this person is God, and this is the Gentiles, and this is the Pharisees, and this is the chief priest, and and um, this this is the wise, and in everything we describe the wine, we describe the nets, we describe. You see what I'm saying? And maybe you've 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 been a part of something like that where we give credence and every every part of the story, every every noun, if you will, every object is giving some part to play and then that, ha- however, constitutes uh, uh, the theology in which we want to follow. And I think that's what I want to warn about is that that's not the case. Uh, God has given us eyes to see and ears to hear and we have to do the work of trusting the Holy Spirit in the context of community to hear what God is saying in light of, especially as we look at these parables about judgment. You know, I, I love what one... Uh, One writer wrote, he said, parables don't need explanation so much as they need implementation. And and I don't think it does us any good to sit here and get the answers to the parable. Okay, that's what the parable story means, great. But if I don't ever apply it, you know, this is what we're talking about. This is what the kingdom is about. This is is the characteristics of those who are in the kingdom, is that they apply. And we're going to jump right into that. Let's look at the first one. Uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 through 27. And I know that uh, two weeks ago, we looked at the Sermon on the Mount. I don't think we looked at this very last paragraph, which is another, a great parable. Matthew 7. I know a lot of you, uh, this might be a favorite for you. Uh, and this is, the great thing about this parable is that it probably gives us the explanation in it. And, and, and a lot of times we'll find it's, it's not about looking real hard and trying to identify uh, too much there. It kind of gives us the telling. But here, let's think about context. Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 is the great Sermon on the Mount. It is the combining that Matthew chooses to do to bring a sermon that I probably, Jesus probably preached at other different places. We know in Luke it's recorded as a Sermon on the Plain, and we'll see some of the similar characteristics of the sermon. Uh, this would be a common thing that Jesus would do. Matthew selected these, and he brought them together, and he finishes up. Matthew chapter 7, and this is, this, is, this is awesome. Therefore, okay, and therefore usually is there for something. In light of what we've just seen and heard from Jesus, Jesus says this, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had a, its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. And there's a a lot of things going on here. Uh, If we were to do justice, this is the last of four warnings. If we were to drop back the true and false disciples, it's not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, is right before this. It talks about uh, the narrow and the wide Gates, this is how you tell if my, you're to my disciples, and he finishes, therefore, this is, and he, and he states it, who everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into the practice. And, and so that is the, the crux of this parable. Just some of the background here. I think it's interesting. Um, in Jerusalem, even now, they, they average about 22 inches of rain, okay? London averages about 22 inches of rain. Now get your view of London. If you've ever flown in London, have you ever seen the sun? If you've been in London, I've never seen it the twice, three times I've been there. But in their 22 inches of rain, they get it over 300 days. Okay, because they have 300 days of drizzle and rain. In Jerusalem, their 22 inches comes in about 50 days. A little closer to Oklahoma. Um, and, and so the understanding of water and rain coming Was, was, was a common uh, picture of the context in which they lived they, they got that Oh, so you're building a house Well, don't build it in a riverbed, right? Don't build it there That makes sense And so a wise, obviously, duh Don't build it, in, build it on rock Don't build it on sand This was not like they had a problem here of Some people building on sand It was such an exaggerated picture of the parable I mean, and we need to understand that side of this parable is that they all knew, like, yes, we know where to build uh, our our house. We build it on the rock, and so understand that behind that, there is a lot of judgment language, and and we're looking at parables that deal with judgment. This is a parable that I would also say that's about discipleship slash judgment. Uh, But but I, when you hear the word judgment. I think we bring something to the table, and I hope we're gonna think a little bit differently about judgment as we walk through uh, these texts. Typically in the Old Testament, we see the difference between blessing and cursing. That's common in the Old Testament, so that's a backdrop here. The language here of storms and a flood is often used as a metaphor throughout Scripture as God's judgment, okay? And so this is the idea that's there, and it's working behind that. The building and the foundation images are probably stock photos of, of metaphors for learning and human effort. Okay, so understand this is how they're looking at this connection here. And we see that the focus is, but verse 20 again, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, he builds like a wise man who builds his house on a rock. But anyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't put them into practice is like a foolish man who builds his, hand, his house on the sand. And then it says, and then it kind of ends, and it's just like, okay, that's the story, and that's your sermon, and we pray? You know, that's kind of an interesting way it had ended, right? The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew, and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. Go. Next. Who's the next? Where am I? Where's my agenda? Where do I go to next? I mean, it's kind of one of those left, wow, this is what we're left with. This kind of, I've heard this incredible teaching about God, these blessed ours, right? Blessed are those who mourn, right? We walk through those. I hear you say that you shouldn't do this, but I tell you this. We see all these teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. He finishes with this incredible story, gives this example, and it's a call in judgment. And again, I don't think it's kind of what we think of when we think of judgment here. Actually, even the word, the idea of wise and foolish Is always judgment language as well. Uh, But the the parable is super clear. It says it in the statement. The focus is on doing, right? The, The focus is like you hear that, like, hello, like, do what I'm telling you to do. Right, it's on obedience. It's not on anything like that's a great story. And I need, can I get a copy of that? Where can I get a copy of that and send that to my my son? You know, it is no. There's there's a there's a simple piece of being a part of the kingdom of God is that it is predicated on you obeying what the kingdom is all about. And so, how is that judgment? (laughs) James chapter one tells us this. Actually, one and twenty two and twenty three. Do not merely listen to the Word, and so deceive yourselves, do what it says. Anyone who listens to the Word and not does what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror, and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what they look like. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ who comes, who sits in a pew, who's in a life group who goes to a Bible study, who reads their Bible every day, who is a moral, upright person, who hears these things and immediately forgets it and and walks and lives this way. See, that's the judgment. Because the wise person hears that and says, how do I bring glory to God and live and honor him by obeying him and his calling? But the foolish person walks away and does something totally different. Uh, You see, the Sermon on the Mount is not to be admired so much. I mean, I think I love the Sermon on the Mount. We memorized it in college, and at the time, I wasn't grateful. But later, I'm grateful. But not because it's just this incredible picture of God's words, but it's not just to be admired, it's to be obeyed. And and the calling to that uh, is the picture there. Um, Judgment Day will come like a flood, and it will disclose which spiritual structure we endure on. I think maybe the mistake is, and now hear me, I think of a great hymn, right? On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Anybody know this? It's a great one. I was going to sing it and have you guys sing it with me to close. And again, I'm, I'm not even going against the, the hymn, but we've made this a story about, well, Christ is the rock and the storms of life, Right? Which again, I don't even know if if we're going incredibly off base here. But it is not like, you know, Christ is my rock. And so when storms hit, like jobs are lost and cancer comes to my family and death comes to my father, right? I think of that, we think of, I can make it through these storms. And again, I'm not even saying that's not even okay. I just think this text is not about if I put my faith in God, the rock, but never obey and follow him, then we are like the foolish man who thinks we're putting our faith in Christ and on his teachings and we put it on the sand. And when the storms hit, they reveal what is at the core of who we are. Right? Now, now I'm not going against Christ being that rock. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is don't miss the point of the judgment here. The judgment is, are you an obeyer? Are you obedient and submissive to the word of Jesus that he has called us to do and be? And is it transforming your life, right? One of the great things about the Sermon on the Mount is it takes these laws that Pharisees and Sadducees had and said, those are incredible laws, and they created all these rules to go with the laws, and then they felt like they were doing really well. And God says, okay, you're missing it. And Jesus comes down and says, no, I want your heart. I want you to submit because you understand what has been given to you and you want to obey out of honor and gratitude to Christ. It's a great parable. Let's look at the next one, or we'll never get done. Um, Matthew chapter 20. So turn to Matthew 20. Again, I, I just want you to look at it whether you read it or not, as much as see the context. Matthew chapter 20. The parable of the vineyard workers, um, and again, let's step back a little bit in greater context. I mean, if you were to jump back, say, to 1913, and I don't mean the year, I mean Matthew 19, 13, um, we see this little section here of the little children coming to Jesus. Don't you love that story? Isn't that a great one, right? The people brought the little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them, but the disciples rebuked them, and Jesus says, oh, no, that's not what we do, Right? I can see us teaching that in the preschool class. No, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Hmm. Ding, ding, ding. Little teaching from God about the kingdom of heaven. And so we apply this 98 ways. Like let's treat kids right. right. And again, <laughs> hear me. I want to treat kids right. I am now a grandparent. I love little kids. And I love to treat them right and give them back. And they can go on. But, I mean, that's not what I'm saying, but that's the context here. The next section here, there's this whole rich kingdom of God situation. This teacher comes and says, hey, hey, God, Jesus, what must I do to to, uh, receive eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you know, are you keeping the the commands? And he tells him, he goes, yeah, I've done all those things. Uh, And and Jesus says, "Um, you know, I've done all these. And Jesus asks him, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven, and then come follow me. This is one we like to sidestep. This is how I, well, this is not what God is asking everybody. He knew what was in the envy of his heart. Okay. Or he just described America, pretty much, right? He described our church, that we care more about our possessions than we do care about serving God, if we're honest. So you hear, this is what's leading up to, okay? Maybe I'm just speaking to me. Maybe that's not you, but it sure is me a lot. And I go into here, and it's really interesting, this kind of, he left away because he was sad. Peter's the one who asked the question that all the other apostles were thinking, right? Like, then who can be saved? Like, we're in a bind here. We're, we're, we're confused. And, and, and then you see this last part. I'm not even going to get into the Matthew 19 section part there. Um, we've left everything to follow you. Peter even asked the same question there in verse 27. What then will there be for us? Okay, so hear that concept. You have a rich young ruler coming. You have a bunch of people who want Jesus' uh, invite they want to sit at his table somebody brought their kids this is an adult meeting hello you brought your kids and they're taking all the good seats around Jesus and so the disciples are like no come on marketing doesn't work this way get your kids out of here we got childcare and got Jesus says no 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 leave them we're hanging out right we see that rich man comes he asks this silly question not silly question he, he's kind of wanting to know but he's kind of wanting like the confirmation that I'm keeping the law right and he says, I've done those things because Jesus said, that's what you need to do. And he goes, that's awesome because I'm doing those things, right? I don't know if there's arrogance there or just excitement that I'm on the right path. I'm not, I don't want to completely judge the guy. But Jesus, you know, says, well, then this is if you want to be perfect, then sell everything you have. And he asks a question that goes more to your motive, right, and your heart. You know, I love, just tell me the seven things I need to do. Right? I love that because I, then I know this is what needs to happen. But I hate it when somebody comes along and says, No, I really want you to do that. <laughs> I mean, I want, you know, it's, it's your mom going, Mom, I clean my rooms. So can I go hang out with my friends? And you stuff everything under the bed. And your mom looks at you and goes, I guess I could let you go. But really, I wanted you to like do this three days ago when I asked you to do it. Right? And so I get a little bit of that in there. The rich man goes away sad. I wish I knew the rest of that story. I don't. Peter's we're in trouble here. And, and then this is this question. And we see that. And I say all that, okay, now jump ahead of the story. And we see uh, later, we see the mother of James and John, the sons of thunder, asking Jesus about, uh, when the kingdom comes, can my kids sit on your right and left? Can like, they be vice president and secretary of state? That's what he's asking, or she's asking. And I don't know if they're going like, oh my goodness, we hear the contr-. So that's all what's surrounding this parable. Now let's jump into the parable. Before I do that, instead of starting with verse 1, <coughs> I'm going to read verse 30 of chapter 19. I don't want us to miss this connection. It says, but many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. And then for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for the vineyard. And he said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. Neat story. Like, wow, what a neat guy, right? And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, call the workers and pay their wages. Now, just a little backside of that. If you were, these were servants slash doulos slaves. And so a slave was a person who was on the lower escalon of the lowest class. There was a huge gap between those and those who owned a business or even had a place to work. Big gap. Okay, think big gap. The reason they paid them at night is because they needed their money every night to live. Like, because on the way home, they had to stop and get food for their family. And so see that in, in what is happening here, okay? So when they came, who was hired first? They expected to receive more, but each of them also received denarius. denarius. Verse 11, when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only an hour. They said, and you have made them equal to us and have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you. I, I, the, other, the other part of the word is, I, you know, I am, I am not being not good to you. Uh, didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who has hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious big word because I am generous verse 16 so the last will be first and the first last I think we can miss it because of our special chapters and verses that we can just jump in and not see how 19 ended and actually started this section of 20 and and this this question is why are these two if you want to call them even many parables on the ends of this story I can tell you that a lot of theologians have argued and weighed this for a long time, way smarter than I am, but I think it has to be something in the context. But many who are first will be last, and many are last will be first. I've heard it translated this. So, so these different people that are hired, right? We, we know that the guy hiring, him, he's God, right? And I would agree Because that's why I made a big deal about the unfair, ungood. If you go back to, I think, the previous chapter, um, uh, maybe even farther back. I can't find it right now. But uh, Jesus says, called him good. and He says, don't call anyone good. only call God who's good. And then he uses that illustration. So I I, I do connect there. But we want to explain all the workers. Like those who were hired first, those would be the Pharisees and the Jews. And then later it was the Gentiles. Because this is a salvation parable. How many have heard that? I mean, that's the thinking, you know, and, and again, this is when we bring allegory to the story and we miss the point in which God is trying to make. And I think these two bookends, if you will, staples on the end of this, give us a little bit of a hint. Many are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. You see, the underlying message in this section is this reversal Okay, that's a huge word, the reversal. And this is what a lot of parables do. It's like you think you've got it figured out, and all of a sudden you're going a different direction. And this is what happens in this parable. There's a reversal of the world's values. In In the middle of this, we catch this parable, and the parable is exaggerated features. Again, this is a story that might happen, but it wouldn't happen like this. There would be people waiting in the marketplace for a job, and they would be waiting, and hopefully somebody would come and hire them so that they could take care of their family. But it wouldn't be a guy from the same place going back every time. That's probably not how it would happen. Think of the logistics. We're assuming that, okay, I need you to work and start working, because I live right here. You know, there's transportation to get, right? I mean, think of these things. So it's an exaggerated again, because that's not the point of the parable. You know, have, have, you, have you just told a story to get to the, the punchline? I mean, this is kind of the parable in its best. It's this reversal that's taking place. And we catch this, and the point that we're used to seeing here is, and here's the point, that there is an unequal pay to the laborers. But listen to how we hear that. And this, is, this one hits me. This is, I was talking to Jim earlier about this one. This is the one, because this is what I wrestle all the time, is this sense that somehow... That I'm owed something. You know what I'm saying? Like somehow I deserve better than this, or I at least deserve at least the middle, right? Uh, I know talk radio this week, there are a lot of people in Texas who don't feel like they got a legitimate justice in a game that happened on Saturday down there. And I, I react like somebody who's been a fan for a long time. It's like, I remember our days when we got a lot of that injustice, right? We tend to see things from the light of our perspective big time. But see, if the point is unequal pay to all the laborers, who got the unequal pay? Now, this is, this is interesting. I want us to think a little bit. The people who didn't get the proper pay were those who came and worked Later. You see, I think sometimes we think, well, what about that first person? No, no, wait, didn't they sign up to do that, right? The people that signed up later assumed that they weren't going to get a full day's pay, let alone an hour's pay, okay? So that is the point. I just think sometimes we look at it from the perspective of, yeah, I worked all day, and you made this promise, and you gave everybody else the same. You know, think about it. Does God have the right to be generous to whatever level he chooses in his judgment, because this is a judgment parable. And I think this is where we need to just wrestle with this. I'm grateful that we have a God in his judgment that shows an incredible generosity to me. And I think this is something that sometimes is missed. And so when we see things like so the last will be first and the first will be last, uh, we, we want to we just make this about God's incredible mercy. Like, God is so merciful, again, that this is the gift of salvation, and it's somehow a free gift, and, you know, heaven knows it's not about working here, but it's about a free gift, and we can receive any time. Yet these brackets make us have to look back at it and go, okay, but he's talking about something else here. I need to think a little bit deeper into this context. Our perceptions on ranking in the kingdom, now think about this, in context, there's no way kids should be sitting here, think about that position right the next thing a rich guy comes he goes well if he kind of makes it he's going to actually sustain us and we're going to like be able to support this entourage of Jesus followers for a while because this rich man if he jumps on board man he's you know he owns Popeye's and we're going to have chicken all the way you know I don't know I'm just throwing that out Um, and so it's that kind of idea and then Peter even asks this okay I'm confused so you know where's my position Peter asked that question on behalf of all the apostles right And then we even asked, you know, the mom of James and John asked the question about, uh, can my guys, you see, I think a part of our problem is, is we're about positions. You see, I'll go back to carrying ourselves, right? How we carry ourselves. You see, I, I can walk in with confidence and brashness and take over a meeting and just get my way, I can complain that you got my order wrong at Taco Bueno, and I'm, by golly, you probably should give me something free, right? I mean, it's this entitlement position kind of word that we come from, and this story just kind of reverses it in my face, and it says, okay, you're missing the point because those who are in the kingdom, it's not about where you rank. There's no rankings in this kingdom, there, there is none of that. There is, there is children, right? And there are, uh, and again, it, the first will be last. It, you know, his focus, yes, it's on God's goodness as well as the complaint towards us about our envy. The, the word there that's in the text, he says, are you so envious because I am generous? It's that kind of deal of giving the evil eye. And so it's, this is the picture behind that. And it's this, of those who thought they should get more from their work, it's almost like, but I've done all this for you, God, shouldn't I get? And when we have that, it just points to a heart that is hardening or has been hardened over time, that somehow, you know, I follow Christ and, and I am so grateful for his grace, but I have for 57 years taught third grade Sunday school To third grade boys, no less, right? And and, and again, I don't think we think that extreme. I don't think we voice those kinds of things. Maybe some of us do sometimes. But I think we think that somehow we missed the point. The kingdom is about a generous giver, right? And he is free to give however he wants. We were talking this morning about Christmas, and, and maybe you on the parent side of this, or maybe you on the kid side of this felt this. Depends on what generation you grew up with. Trying to balance Either these two ways. When kids are younger, it's the number of presents they open, right? Okay, everybody gets this amount because they don't understand how much it costs, but they do understand, he got one more than I did, but one of yours was a car. Okay, you know, that kind of thing. As they get older, it's not about the numbers, it's about how much did you spend. And um, I have to admit that I was the kid in my family figuring out that number in my head. You know, like, okay, 43 plus carry that, you know okay, maybe he's 18 and there's a special thing about 18, I'm not sure, but I'm gonna check that one and I'm gonna check in how the family's supposed to spend money on their kids. You know, it's just inborn in us that we think there should be equalness. And yet, the equalness is in what God chose to give. And and this is the message. You know, I I think maybe our heart should be one of gratitude. Do we get excited for someone else? This is what's so amazing about uh, those who run uh, long, you know, like the, the, the half mile. If you've ever watched the Olympics, you've got these guys pacing, right? And there are guys that just solely go as hard as they can to protect someone else to win. Or in the Tour de France, it's, it's your team going out so that you can be the winner. And, and, and I think probably the kingdom is, we'll do whatever it takes for you have the opportunity to meet the goodness and the mercy of our Lord and Savior. We're going to smoke through these last two. Matthew 24. Matthew 24, this is an interesting one. I even, okay, I'm not seeing it. And then I don't really want to get into it. This whole section, again, it's a context. 24, 25 is called the Olivet Discourse. And the reason it's called that is at the very beginning of 24, Jesus had been teaching in the temple. Uh, if you look at Matthew 23, he's doing the serious woes, So he is going off on the Pharisees and Sadducees. Okay, that is not the context. By the time you get into 24, they're heading back to Bethany, a few miles away. Okay, and so Jesus and his disciples and probably those that are with them, and they are walking by the buildings of the temple, and, and Jesus makes some statements about that, that I'm going to tell you those things will fall. And they walk a little ways. And if you've been to the Holy Land, it's pretty cool. But you just walk literally about 400 yards. If you were to walk it down a little valley and back up on the hill, it's almost like straight across, but the valley below you are almost at the same level. And they're sitting there resting before they make the rest of their trip to uh, Bethany. And Peter, again, asks a question that leads into this dissertation called the Olivet Discourse. The other name for that is the Eschatological Discourse. And the reason is for eschatological, meaning the end of time. And so whether that's heaven or death or the coming of Christ. And so there is a lot that is in this section. This is a text that lines up a lot of people. will line it right up with Revelation, okay? So you need to understand that. Rightfully, I'm not quite so sure, but this is what is taking place. And so in the midst of all this is all those conversations. And then in in verse 42, I'm gonna read this first little parable and we'll kind of bypass it and get the next one. Therefore, keep watch... Okay, he's talking about the day and hour. Because you do not know at what day our Lord will come, okay, his return. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. So we get this idea, okay, being ready is is pretty important. And and that sets the stage. And then probably the centerpiece of this parable parabolic section here is this next section verse 45 who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in the household to give them their food at the proper time it will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns truly i tell you he will put him in charge of all his possessions but suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself my master is staying away a long time, and he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on the day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he is not aware of, and he will cut him into pieces and assign him to a place with hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's a lot to undress there. Again, don't be caught up in the outside of the context of this. Like cut in two pieces then put him with these people. Why would he put them there? they Cut in two pieces. That doesn't make sense, right? Okay. Uh, There's a lot there and I'll let you do that. We don't have time to cover that, thankfully. Um, The backdrop of this is this. It's eighty seventy. Okay, so in about 8 to 12 years, Jerusalem will fall. Okay, so Matthew is being written before that happens. Okay? And so that's kind of the backdrop. So part of this promise, or promise these uh, prophecies that Jesus is making is about the fall of Jerusalem. So Hear that in context. I think that's valuable. Um, so we talk about the coming of the Son of Man. Has Jesus even died and resurrected yet? No. Okay, so don't forget those obvious aspects here. Um, but, but as we see this, this little section here takes us to the next section, and we're going to try to catch them both at once. The parable of the Ten Virgins. It says, At that time. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in the jars along with the lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming. And they all became drowsy and fell asleep. Just a little sidebar here in these two sections. Anytime you see the long time in coming, there has been a lot of argument that church history came in and added these to the scriptures after Jesus didn't return as, as fast as they thought he was, the Parousia, And so when Christ said, I will come back, and he hadn't come back yet, they kind of added the delay in coming. So that's kind of an interesting, we don't believe that, but that is a common thought. I don't believe that, I should say. I don't know if you do or not. You've probably never heard about it before. Um, so by the way, where am I at? Okay. Where, where did I stop? Yep. Six, thanks. At midnight, they're crying out, here's the bridegroom come out to meet him. And then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they're on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived, the virgins who were ready went in to him at the wedding banquet, banquet and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the doors for us. There's the switch. Hear that. Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he replied, Truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch. Because you do not know the day or the hour. I could tell you that really from church history, we don't have a lot about this time of history as far as how Actual weddings were orchestrated. So sometimes they look at this and they, there's some confusion is, how could these steps happen? And again, I would argue, don't get caught up in the details of the parable as far as the facts of trying to put a story together. Get to the point of the message that Jesus is trying to convey. And, the, and this one switches on a dime at the very end of it in verse Verse 11. When it says, Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. He says, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, here is the crux. Keep watch because you don't know the day or the hour. These last two judgment parables are to a group of people who are about to face a long journey that we are now the extension of, if you will, 2,000 years later. He is developing kingdom-minded followers of him. He is teaching them new things as they take the law and the prophets. And Jesus says, what, in Matthew, right, in the Sermon on the Mount, I've come not to abolish but to fulfill. And so he begins to fulfill, and they're starting their, the, the mind's starting to work, right? God is speaking the truth. They're hearing, and they're starting to understand. And then as he gets to a time, Jesus knows what's going on. He's about to go to a cross, he also is very aware that Jerusalem is going to fall in 80-70. He also knows that the church will be scattered. He knows all these things, and he tells these lines of parables about be watchful, be prepared, right? And so this is a story of, of people not being prepared. It's not about. So, you know, again, it's judgment. So we see wise and foolish in both these sections, right? A wise servant and a foolish servant. A wise servant who's the boss has put me in charge, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna honor him, and I'm gonna do what he wants me to do. Versus the one who says, "My family's gone. We're gonna have a party this Friday night after the game." Right? It's the difference between wise and foolish. It's the difference between being prepared and being unprepared. Keeping watch. And this is the challenge, not only to us, but to the people of the day. You see, there were gonna be people that are gonna shout. He says, you're gonna hear of all these things, but, but wait, there's a promise that's coming. And he is telling these kingdom things, and he's saying, this is what it means to be a follower of me. Not only to hear, but obey. Not only to, uh, to see, but to understand, and to begin to do. Not only to... Uh, to fight the urge that I'm in the kingdom. So now how do I work my, up, my way up in it? But how I'm grateful and how I want other people to be a part of this kingdom because of what God has done for me. May I be prepared. May I be ready. May I be uh, living a life that I am ready. So it doesn't matter when he comes because I am ready because I'm obedient to him. And my heart is being transformed. And so when the judgment comes, whether it is a fall of Jerusalem, it is an immediate judgment, or even to us, it is the return of God. Are we faithful? <clears throat> are we keeping watch? Are we staying obedient and true to his word? Is our heart transforming for his glory? This is the judgment. This is, these are judgment parables to push us to put our trust in Him, I want to close with Hebrews chapter 11, uh, just a section here, because we see this picture, some before Jesus and some after, but I love how he describes them. We have this beautiful story of faith in Hebrews 11, I think verse 15, maybe 13, 13. All these people, this is Old Testament and this is some new, were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. Those are words of promise to us, and that is awesome news, that in spite of a judgment that is going to come, and it's going to happen, it will happen, but are you examining your life? Are you keeping watch? Are you being prepared? Are you ready? Are you hearing the word and responding in it? And then you can live with a trust that I'm in the kingdom and following him. Have a great one. See ya.